Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. I've got with me, as ever... Oh, uh, Roger, yes, that one. I'm Lucy, I think. And not not as as ever, we we have our visiting ex-menologist, Hester. Hello, my name's Hester Wells. I've got no real qualifications for being here. Which is to say <laughs> you are precisely as qualified as any of us. Hurrah! Lucy, what have you been reading? All sorts. I've been on holiday. How was that? Oh, really nice. Much better being at work. Sort of largely why we haven't done any podcasts, because mm. none of us have been about, really, mm. have we? Well, yeah, like you went to foreign climes, mm. I quit my job. Mm. I went to Belfast. That's also kind of foreign climes. Mm. Not to you, but... Not, not to, to me. To other people. Because people who don't look like you. Yeah. Very large and doughy over there. I was going to go with blue-eyed and dark hair for sure. Yeah. I was <laughs> going to call him the Wolverine edition Mr. Potato Head, so, you know. You've got a range of friends, is what we're saying. Yeah. And traits, apparently. Mm. A range of traits. Mm, yes, lots. There's removable eyes and lips. Mm. So for those of the, you that haven't encountered me in real life, from this description, you would guess that I am sort of a hairy cylinder, and you would be broadly correct. Tell us about Tetris, Lucy. Oh, Tetris is really good. It's my favourite game. That's not entirely true, but I do like a lot of games in the Tetris vein. My current addiction is Doge 2048. Oh, God. <laughs> is that another version of Threes? Basically, yeah. It's, it's a Doge-based 2048 clone. It's yeah. freely available on app and web. It's So the Tetris effect, which is mentioned in Box Brown's Tetris, which I read, which is how we got here in the first place, um, you also get from Doge 2048. I've been trying to go to sleep the last week and I just get magical googly eyed Doges just kind of floating around. I, yeah, I got that when I was playing Threes in 2048 mm. and it's all bad the stuff. various clones. It's a bad scene. Dace thinks it's possibly like displacement or something, I don't know, but I'm just having a nice time. Okay. This book, Tetris, yes, that I read. By Box Brown. Yes. Tell it's us about that. Extremely good. It's about the it's about the history of Tetris, but it's also kind of about the history of like games as sort of sport and art mashup and like games in human culture. So it kind of starts off on that a bit, and then it goes into kind of the sort of business and legal bits of Tetris, the kind of multi-year sort of rights wrangling between Russia and the West. Yeah, where nobody got, really knew what they were doing. You got <laughs> it was like Cold War video games. Yeah, it was eighty five yeah. that he developed it. You got and you got American and British investors trying to buy something that where the IP notionally belonged to the Soviet state. It was an interesting time. Hmm. Yeah. And this comic has a lot about the intricacies of that deal. So if that's a thing that sounds interesting to you and you like your comics extremely pleasantly drawn, this might be one. You'll have heard me talking about um, the very cute Hulk Hogan in Andre the Giant, which was Box Brown's last book. And that kind of, he's got that cute little facial style. I feel like, I just want to kind of like squeeze the cheeks of everybody who made Tetris. Yeah. Yeah, they're a bit like those um, rubber monsters that you used to get. Mm. Like the little plastic wrestlers and monsters and things like that. They, they have that sort of square face. And the kind of long dangling like, muscleless yeah. limbs. Yeah. yeah. That went to a weird place. It did go to a weird place. Oh, you yeah. like Tetris. Mm. Yeah, weird. I do. And it's a really, really, really good book. Also, see from my notes here, which I mentioned purely to let people know that we actually do some work on this, um, that you've basically read everything of Julia Gaffer's back catalogue. Yes, I have, and it was great. If you like the sort of, I guess, sort of 
Emily Carroll, but less frightening and with more of a dash of Tumblr and despair. Yeah. That's a heady mix. Yeah. It's, I don't know, it's that kind of... Everything's extraordinarily bleak in that kind of... You know that kind of crippling like self-awareness that just feels like your insides are just kind of eating themselves? Yeah. It's like that, yeah. but all the time in all the comics. How's the art? <laughs> Scratchy, <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> like something horrible is trying to get out. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of... Like, a, there's a lot of kind of feeling of clawing, yeah. even if there is no actual clawing. Does it all look like... Because I only read one of them. Does it all look like Kate Beaton really likes ink work and hates being happy? Yes. Yes, it does. Again, if that's the thing you enjoy, you'd probably enjoy this. But she's also done some quite interesting stuff recently. She did a series on sort of the history of fashion and women's labour mm. and how that all ties together for some manner of journalism site. Okay. Um, that's a three-part series, and that's very good. It's sort of... Well drawn, well told. I'm guessing, broadly speaking, unacknowledged labour contribution, then a bunch of dudes turn up and... No, no, not exactly. It's not like a comprehensive history, so she picks three kind of separate facets of it, mm. one of which is sort of the kind of how fast fashion works as an industry, so sort of H&M mm. bring the shit in, then Horrifying. they just dump it and get more shit in, so you buy shit every single week. Sort of how we got from you might pay a dressmaker, but if there was anything wrong, you could fix it at home yourself to mm. you buy a new thing every week to wear yeah. for minimal quantities of money made in a sweatshop somewhere. Oh, like that douchebag from um, Soylent. Yes. I don't know what specifically you're referring to, but I believe... Oh, this big thing about having um, cut out all dependencies. He wrote this ridiculous blog post about having cut out all dependencies on utilities or general human function, and his thing was, oh, I just get my clothes ordered in commodity quantities from China, and when I'm done with them, I throw them work in the charity shop. And he appeared to have not understood that his super-sustainable lifestyle consuming no utilities had basically just had everything as an externality with horrifying... Um, he outsourced all of his consumerism like, Absolutely consumer everything, needs. completely outsourced, and imagined he was living in an eco-friendly way because he's a libertarian fuckpike. But also, a lot of people got the really bad shits from their food bar. That is kind of funny. That yeah. is also quite funny. Because the Dutch one does yeah. not give you the shits. Like, if ever there was a demographic that deserved to poop. Yeah. Like, uncontrollably. Yeah. Oh, that's that's more fair. It also made them vomit. That's it was a true. twofer. Or as, my, as my mother used to call it, going all ends. Mm. But for, you know, tech bros. Wise lady. I feel we strayed. Mm, I feel we have. If you had to recommend one sort of starting point for Julia Gaffer's... Mm, I don't know. I mean, so they're... They're quick we, enough that you can read all the ones that I have read mm. in... An hour or so. Yeah, I read the Mermaid one quite fast. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll link to everything you've got here in the in the show notes. Yeah, I haven't read anything of her since Black is the Color. Um, the Thirty Nine Ryan Gosling's is splendid. It's a sort of poster <laughs> piece rather than a comic. But <laughs> that sounds like an excellent place to start. Yeah. So in the in the Mermaid one, yeah, you've got this weird sort of dual reality of what sort of 19th century boat bros mm. with weirdly modern all in a band playing like electric loop synth mermaids yes does it all have that kind of weird sort of it's, so it, it felt completely tonally consistent yes and had a sort of high-handed disregard for its own weirdness mm. and I really enjoyed that is that a common thing I think probably not not sort of where the dissonance is so obvious to the same extent, because a lot of the pieces are a lot shorter, but sort of 
I guess that kind of weird feeling of loneliness you get if you think about the 19th century sailor bros mm. who are dying and freaking out and whatever, and the mermaids mm. are kind of their only hope, and then the mermaids are just like basically playing with them and then going mm. and having fun of their own in a yeah. completely different cultural setting. Like that discomfort, yes, is in other things that she's mm. done, but just in different ways. But if you like feeling uncomfortable, I would definitely read a lot of her stuff. Well, Anne's British. Or eat a soiled food bar. Yes. You will feel deeply uncomfortable. Which is really an inadvisable quantity of beans. So you got some options there. Mm. Anything else you want to tell us about? Giant Days. Perhaps. Giant Days, yeah. I caught up on Giant Days. Um, I caught up on it a lot more than I intended to. So you found it survived the uh, change in artists? More than survived. I mean, this is this is a, says a lot about me and the way my eyes work. But I didn't notice a huge amount until I read it on the front of the book. So, okay. it, the quality was not altered. No, they've picked people who really fit it as well. Yeah. How different is it from someone who has eyes? It's. I mean, I I could see that the artists had changed, but they're drawing from the same style sheet. So it's not mm-hmm. like that sort of totally consistent Saturday morning cartoon thing where there's no free expression, but it's definitely in, in the same the of the series. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I had read the first trade and I meant to read the second trade and leave it there and then I just bought all of the rest of the singles up until where we currently are straight after that and read all of them as well in the same sitting. Yeah. It's that good. So, that's, I mean... There is little better uh, sort of hmm. user feedback than a purchase order. So no, indeed. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> Especially a compulsive purchase order. Yeah. There's been... Um, I mean, the plot arcs are so weirdly small and mm. like they get two or three issues out of just going to someone's hometown and finding it a bit weird. Yeah. And having a fight with the people that run the local club. It's, but it's also, it's one of those things where... A lot of the time when people try to write students and young people, there's something kind of tonally off. Whereas in this one, they're actually, in terms of what they sort of do and say, they're not particularly habitual students, but I don't ever disbelieve that that's what they're meant to be. Mm -hmm. So he manages to do, I think, a huge amount within that constraint without it sort of feeling like it loses its trueness to what it's trying to be. Also, if you're um, a fan of, of Bad Machinery or Giant Days, there is now a Desmond Fishman sticker pack for iOS. You can send people Desmond Fishmans in your messages. If you're a fan of those comics and you're not a fan of your friends. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I've only sent one of them today. He's also, a terrible, terrible fish man. He is a terrible fish man. Having not read this comic, I'm very confused. He's not a good dude. He he thinks he is, but he's not a good dude. He's the son of a fancy old sea captain and a mermaid, but he got the all fish bits. (laughs) But he can't really swim. He has like his 50 metres badge sewn into his trunks, trunks, which he wears all the time. Despite being a fish. Despite being a fish, but also a man. Yeah, Yeah. he's kind of like the creature from the Black Lagoon got a head injury. That's... (laughs) Yeah. But came out of it very chipper. Strident. Yeah. Okay. It's good. Mm. Hester, what have you been reading? Um, I've mostly been concentrating on the uh, the, the butt topic. The topic so, at hand, which yeah. I didn't mention earlier, but is butts. Well, uh, objectification, socialisation of butts. Which, which yeah. was interpreted as butts. Well, we'll see how far we get. Um, I have been reading New Avengers, which was a new one for me. Um... 
which uh, does have some some butt related uh, comments that, most, that one can make. But, mostly um, Novar, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but uh, I'm not a huge fan of uh, Gillen McKelvey, or, or at least Wickdiv. I kind of bounced off. Which one um, is it? Is it Gillen or is it McKelvey? Both of them. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Because um, it's usually Gillen. <laughs> <laughs> I think Gillen would say that it's usually Gillen. Um, I think that that's the thing about McKelvey's art. Um, I think I find it weirdly static mm. or something, uh, and that kind of, uh, particularly in the context of superhero comics, kind of puts me off. But even in the context of Wick Div, I found uh, problematic that there are some beautiful things in um, Young Avengers. Um, so uh, stuff where he's playing with the uh, with the panels, the the characters sort of clawing out of of, of panels, and there's a whole um, another sort of access to the multiverse, um, which is involves a lot of white space and um, uh, playing with the sort of construct of the, of the comic page. Um, that stuff is is really lovely. Um, but when it comes to just sort of faces and people, and it doesn't it doesn't look bad. It's kind of attractive, but I, I find it weirdly kinetic, <laughs> um, uh, sort of non kinetic. So um, yeah, it, it, it's not. It is curious that some of the sort of the bigger action scenes in that are done in com- sort of heavily ironized ways. Like there's the big shootout scene with Nova, which is done diagrammatically. Yes, mm-hmm. um, I like that. Which is lovely, but again, it's not. It's another way of getting around having a sort of hyperkinetic action. Pattern. Yeah, is it Billy Bobby? Mm-hmm. I can never remember his actual name. Uh, Wiccan. Billy Captain. Yeah, wandering around the sort of striding across the panels laid out like a tile floor. That's kind of yeah. Mm. So my favourite thing about, I think that the, I enjoy Wiktiv um, probably a lot less than some, more than I think you guys do. But I'm coming. I've come around having read Young Avengers and sort of reread it uh, to the feeling that maybe as a as a creative team they respond sort of at their peak to the constraint of maybe an existing franchise or to mm. like having. So, for example, the Nova diagrammatic fight is a really good response to the constraint of big superhero fight. Yeah, we have to have a fight in this issue, yeah. and this is an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I, well, that said, I've not read what's supposed to be the big kinetic interesting fight issue in Wiktiv because I stopped playing the singles and started trade waiting, but apparently that's quite lively. Um, I suppose other reactions to it are based on the fact that it's, it's a team superhero thing... I don't know most of the characters. Um, I've I know Kate from Hawkeye, um, and I know Loki from general pop culture stuff and mm. MCU. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the other characters were were pretty much new to me, or only knew their names mm. or whatever. And therefore, I maybe didn't get a lot out of the characterization. I can't really comment on how how this fits into what you already know about them. Uh, but I found e- even I read three trades, and even within that space, I kind of came out of it at the end thinking I don't really know these people. Um, You're all then, nice teens, but why should I care? Yeah, just, yeah, that's where I left it off after the first trade. Yeah, that kind of Dawson's Creek and spandex thing, mm-hmm. um, and where I could put it in the context of uh, you know characters like Kate that I knew a bit about. Mm-hmm it kind of seemed more significant and I ended up maybe putting more emphasis on her scenes, although they weren't terribly plot relevant because I felt like I connected to something 
Mm. I think for a lot of the existing characters, they didn't bother too hard. So I think the characters who'd been in the previous Young Avengers run sort of they maintained their character but characters have been brought in from elsewhere um, so Miss America was new yeah uh, she's a new character and, and Kid Loki was sort of continued from Gillen's run on Thor um, but Novar certainly very very different to any version of him that I'd seen before and I think they sort of did that big hard reset with him at the start where he just sort of said Oh, I've abandoned everything I thought before because I fucking love the Ronettes. Which, if you're going to do that, is actually a pretty good way of resetting the character. Has he yeah. always had such a good butt? Uh, yeah, because it was Grant Morrison trying to make Marvel sexy yeah, when I, he was created. I read some stuff that suggested the sort of sexiness was there in the in the early version of character, then maybe mm. got forgotten about for a bit. And was brought back by yeah. Yeah, he's never been a major the character. Century. Was, he was a, he was sort of original Grant Morrison creation back when Grant Morrison had that pretty f- exclusive mm. contract with um, Marvel before he got scared about not writing the Flash and ran back again. Um, so it was sort of it was at the same time as his X Men stuff, and he basically wanted to do sort of punk rocky characters within the Marvel universe, mm. and so that was one of his. But yeah, it's changed quite a lot. Um, he used to be a sort of completely amoral lunatic and now not so much because he fucking loves the Ronettes who doesn't I mean I went to see a musical featuring the music of the Ronettes once at the ADC what was that it was pretty good I think it may have been called Be My Baby or something like that (laughs) I don't think I actually know who the Ronettes are I might know their music if it was played to me but I I felt maybe I was missing something about his character or not (laughs) Well, I think the main thing is written by Kieran Gillen. Mm. Therefore, music jokes. Mm-hmm. True. Mr. Hart, what are you reading? Um, well, <clears throat> I mean, I reprised a few things for um, hashtag butts, but then just uh, just a few odds and ends, really. So, the um, I, I've raved several times in the podcast about Blame, the giant sprawling kind the of... The thing we keep assigning to you. <laughs> also... The giant sprawling cyber dystopia manga by um, Satomu Nihei. And that's now been reissued in a massive outsized edition. It's like A4 size. Um, really nice printing. Um, coming out in, I think, so there's ten volumes in total. I think this is going to be four or five. Are there ten? There might be more. There are a lot of volumes of manga sized volumes, and this is going to be four or five giant soft cover things. Um, I've not quite finished reading the first volume, so I'm not going to talk about it in any detail. I'll probably cover it later, but bloody hell, it's beautiful. It does this, this sort of... The setting is a giant megastructure that... It's either a city that's grown over the entirety of the Earth, or possibly, implicitly, it might even be bigger than that. Mm. Um, separated into strata, through which a character, a sort of taciturn, androgynous loner, is... Um, is wandering in search of some stuff and keeps encountering tribes of vaguely trans- transhuman or post-human people um, and weird fungus creatures and mm. giant robots and it's got some really good visualisation of kind of metastasized urban spaces. Mm-hmm. It's just a wonderful thing and every time you think it's been it's sort of hit as weird it's going to get you turn the page and there's a slightly different sort of pivot of what's going on visually. It's... Um, it's a little bit... It's, it's riddled with gratuitous violence, but it is jolly good fun. 
like so many things. Uh, so yeah, blame. I'll um, I'll cover in a bit more detail once I finish finish reading it and actually made sense of it because it it's a very kind of immediate, no explanation thing, and I haven't quite picked through what's going on well enough to talk about it. But it is gorgeous. Um, what have I read? I've been picking through um, the short box that I ordered because everyone loves short box. Mm-hmm. Um, Just remind us. Sorry, yes, um, short box is what Zenavactar is doing now. Um, after deciding that. Not unreasonably, she'd had enough with everyone being absolutely fucking awful to her, and just everything feeling like a horrendous struggle, she kind of stopped blogging and writing about comics for a while. But did pick up, that's probably a gross simplification, I'm sorry, but did pick up a thing that she'd been meaning to do for ages, which was to effectively become a small press. So Shortbox, the first one was a curated selection of, I think, mostly original, maybe entirely original work. The second one, which I bought, is entirely original work. Basically, um, it's a box delivery of comics, zine kind of um, indie stuff. Takes the pre-orders, hits, hits the threshold, is able to fund the print of the kind of stuff that she's found that she wants to run. So it's sort of somewhere between a, a subscription service and a, and a crowdfunder, I guess, a little bit. But effectively, she's become a, a small publisher of sort of scritchy, zine fun things. And there's loads of good stuff in the second one. So... Um, I've almost finished it, but the, the two that I'm going to talk about are a wonderful little thing called Your Black Friend by um, Ben Passmore and Heavy Air by Lizzie Stewart. I think both of those are currently short box exclusives. Um, Food Baby, which we talked about last time, you can now buy singly from the short box website. You should do that, it's lovely. Um, That's lots of little recipes and things yeah. about food by Lucy. Uh, yeah. Is it Lucy? Lucy, yeah. Yeah, uh, Food Baby, available to buy. Um, the, the other bits and pieces, so Your Black Friend, uh, Ben Passmore, it's a short thing, very zany. Uh, and it's basically this guy sort of kindly but firmly giving a little bit of a slap to well-intentioned but tone-deaf allies in the whole race relations dialogue. Um, it, it's, uh, I think it's, it's largely American from some of the idiom. There's that sort of focus on current, recent, current, re- recent American events and um, like heavy-handed racist policing mm-hmm. and the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's each page sort of in general begins with your black friend thinks or your. Black, so the idea is sort of well-meaning people trying to be non-racist, trying to be allies, kind of fucking it up. And what your black friend thinks while you do this, um, and sort of. A little deconstruction of well-intentioned white people's unthinking racism, or the stuff that where they think they might be helping but they're not, mm. or the effect of socio-economic inequalities that people sometimes don't disconstruct, uh, deconstruct. But also some of the things where he feels uncomfortable in his own community. Um, there's a sort of thing of um, not every black American man has to want to be African. That kind mm-hmm. of uh, sort of attempts to construct different types of black identity that he mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with in. Uh, how annoyed he is being told by some, it seems quite often, older black people, that, oh, you seem so white, you'll be terribly successful, that must be nice for you. And that kind of, so it's this really, it feels really casual, the cartooning style is really loose, very zany, very like underground comics. Um, But underneath that sort of the breezy, zany feel of it is some very uncomfortable stuff, just these tiny little dissections of awkward and politically important cultural moments. It's... Mm -hmm. um, I felt quite uncomfortable reading it. I sort of recognised some of my yeah some of my own well-intentioned failings or some things I hadn't thought about or 
it's, yeah. It's got a lovely little coda at the end about liberals sometimes fucking it up. Mm. It uses an analogy of, um, and I don't know that I totally agree with this, but um, there are problems, but I think the analogy in, in the end of the coda is about the first X-Men movie and a certain sector of American liberalism being more upset when Juggernaut called someone a bitch as opposed to him having just killed a bus full of ch- children. Mm. Well, actually, you know, both are problems and we can talk about them both being problems, but... <laughs> Maybe don't forget the other one. Mm. I, I would the limitation of that argument. I would suggest is that it goes on to kind of forget the fact that the, the other thing is still a problem. Where am I going with this? It's good. You've worked yourself up, haven't you? I have. You've, I'm in a little lather. Are you wet and frothy? I am. I'm foamy and moist. What's got you so foamy and moist? So why, damp around the nethers. Why comics, Mister Congrey? I knew it. I think we all knew it. Oh yes, damp for comics. I think we'd be excellent, like, drive-time DJs. <laughs> Just this and a soundboard. It would be amazing. What are you trying to get people to drive off? Hand-based soundboard. Handboard. <laughs> Worst liqueur. Ham. <laughs> the holy hand grenade. Oh. If you don't... Is that? <laughs> if you don't understand why anyone's suddenly talking about ham, you are one of the lucky ones. <laughs> Rejoice. Oh, what else? Oh, I've, I've had ample opportunity for reading. <laughs> no, you haven't. <laughs> no, I haven't. I've been really busy, which is why I've read Tossle. Gam on then uh, and tell us about it. Oh! oh. <laughs> the much coveted triple groan. <laughs> usually, <laughs> usually, <laughs> usually like a fine honey roast ham. Yes, that was the implication. Yes. But thank you for saying it. No, I need to explain people's jokes back to them so I feel clever. Oh, he's, he's, he's just, just larding it's it on now. on the behalf. Oh, yeah, all right. Um, so the other thing that I've read from Shortbox is, which is um, a lot less emotionally complicated and, and made me feel a lot less, like, you know, guilty for being white and clueless. Mm. So, you know, it was nicer in many ways, although less socially useful, um, is Heavy Air by Lizzie Stewart. Mm which is this little kind of pin to um, a particular kind of sort of brutalist or that era housing estate. Mm-hmm. So one of the ones that didn't go fully dysfunctional. Uh, it's based on her experience growing up in or around a uh, the London housing estates whose name I temporarily forget. Uh, <clears throat> one with quite good tree coverage and the this has been exaggerated in the, the comic where it sort of gives this intro talking about the place having been sort of sensitively designed so as not to disrupt any of the tree coverage, therefore giving it quite a green feel and making it quite a bit more spaced out than some of these projects were. And it's the story of a single evening, the evening of the storm, where some kids go, her uh, older sister goes out to fetch her brother in from playing, and they find a fox which seems to be dying. It's about to absolutely piss it down. And they decide, child logic, that the fox shouldn't die in the rain, so they're going to build it a shelter. And then they decide that it shouldn't die somewhere ugly, so they try and make it beautiful. And go and grab a bunch of like flowers and things from nearby gardens and heap that on it. And then it takes on this quasi-ceremonial thing where they sort of start offering it things. So they sort of build this weird dying fox shrine, sort of scattered with sweet wrappers and papers and cans of drink. And it becomes a bit of a project for sort of neighbourhood kids joining in. Then the storm breaks, pisses it down, um, the high pressure, everyone's going a bit crazy. She sort of spends the evening not sleeping, listening to the rain, and then again sort of sees in the morning that what was once beautiful is now a puddle of mud with an absent fox and a load of fucking litter. Mm. Um, 
and some of the people that she sort of saw on that occasion she never sees again because the estate's quite large and later it gets demolished. And it's interspersed with these little cut-throughs of her thinking about, yeah, and then in 10 years I'll be at university and I'll have, how does she phrase it, ironed out the kinks in my accent without noticing and be talking to all of these nice posh people who ask what it's like to grow up from the estate. So it's, it's sort of, it's sad and meditative and really captures the... I mean, I never built a house for a dying fox, but I've had, I did sort of weird things that made sense at the time mm. as a kid. I'm sure we all did, and it kind of really captures that feel of the momentum of, of a mad little project mm. carrying you on, all the time with the sky pressing down, the storm about to break, making you crazy. Um, visually, it's, it really, really sells that. So it's sort of scratchy, almost, cr- not scratchy, sort of jerky, almost crayony but with bits of ink wash. And it's been printed on this lovely waxy paper that makes it feel like the whole thing's been colored in by a kid with a, with a big fat crayon. Um, it's got a really nice childhood feel to it with little semi-detailed views of the buildings, but very loose, um, almost like um, the sort of the things that you've been reading, the, mm. uh, those sort of per, like fidgety person de- depictions. Mm. And then a wonderful sort of center, center spread of just the fox's house. With these, because everything's quite grey and anemic, and then there is little kind of crayon flowers and things. It's it's just got a lot of heart to it. It's a it's a lovely thing. I feel sad about the fox, and I didn't even read it. So. Yeah, you will. It's good describing. It it packs in a lot of stuff. There's memory and sadness and a little bit of social anger. The the, the, the bit at the end is basically in the end we were all moved out because the estate was being knocked down, but we couldn't afford to afford to move into the flats they were building. But it's it's sort of laced with little stuff about the politics that sits under these projects, but mm. the fact that this was one that seemed to work. Mm. And I guess kind of becomes a metaphor for that all ending and yeah, set against the storm. It's, what, 20 pages or something? Really? If, maybe maybe a little more. Damn. A4 zine with gorgeous paper, and it's just brilliant. Good. Also read a bit of a Shimbo. Because that's what you do now. That's what I do now. I, I read the the Japanese food comic. This one's about ramen and gyoza. Ooh, delicious. And there's a there's a thing about two brothers who have competing ramen restaurants, but one of them's crap at making broth and the other one's crap at hand-pulling noodles and they have to be reconciled so that they can get their, their noodle award back. Is everything about food and family strife in this comic series? Why do you think I like it so much? <laughs> Christ, they're tossed in a few whippets. Can I have some as well? <laughs> yeah, I can, we can delegate the whippets. Mm. Hard. Why don't you tell us about this delightful wine? Do you actually like it? I've sort of barely noticed it. I've really? re- registered a pleasant alcohol sensation, but otherwise... Because it's got sort of green fruit and light minerals, I think. What is it? It's a um, Vidéo, Vidéo, something like that. Spanish, it's Spanish wine. It's... Um, the, there's a particular region somewhere central Spanish that has this as one of its major blends that's often paired with Sauvignon Blanc or um, Vieira. Uh, <clears throat> and this is this is just that on its own. It's, it's classic Roger, it's deeply unfashionable table wine that I quite like, basically. So this is excellent. It's five pounds a bottle from Cambridge Wine Merchants and it tastes so much better than that. Uh, I'm mostly getting a hint of spicy hoop. Yeah. Which is a snack we were just eating, for the record. Due to the wonders of the modern age, you won't have heard us greedily devouring Satan's take on the hula hoop, but that's (laughs) that's what we were doing. That's so good. Yeah, it's 
Not a good pairing suggestion, to be honest. No, no, it doesn't go great with the wine. The wine is, I would say, sort of gooseberries and green apple with a kind of slight vegetal note flattening it out and a little bit of mineral. Yeah, you see, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of like more mineral and less fruit. That's fair, that's fair. I mean, I, I go for it because it's like, do you remember when oak chardonnays just went way over the top on the honey? Yes. Yeah, so it's like that, but with the, with the oak pulled right down. I've been drinking for a long time. Drinking but we never know what he's drinking. talking about. Do you like it because it's five pounds a bottle, Roger? <laughs> also. Do you like it because they'll open it for you in the shop and they won't kick you away from the wall when you slump down there? <laughs> that only happened. You had your birthday party there. <laughs> I did. It was very strange. There was some nice cheese. There was some nice cheese, but then people I like had to talk to my dad. So I've been reading some things. Really? I've been reading superhero comics. Oh, golly. That's hardly ever happened been reading a couple of things by Tom King, um, who is a former CIA agent who now writes comics. Um, Actually? Yeah. Because that sounds like a setup. Yeah, no, no it's, 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 it's true. So he's written... Um, so a Warren Ellis comic came to life and wrote comics. Yes. Um, so it, there's one for DC called The Omega Men, which is... Um, essentially a sort of space cosmic superheroes take on the idea of freedom fighters being terrorists and vice versa depending on where you look at it from um it starts with them kidnapping and seemingly killing on camera one of the shittier green lanterns um sorry carl reina but you're shit um and then it sort of spends sort of 10 to 12 issues looping through the various systems in play, the different um, different agendas that people have and the way that people are perceived through their own actions and portrayed by others, um, which is a pretty good use of a Green Lantern comic, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Um, the, main, the main thing about that is it stopped someone writing a Green Lantern comic. Yes, that's always good. Um, it's it's bleak. Uh, it's really quite bleak. And even when the character, like at every point that the characters might notionally seem heroic, something horrible happens, something genuinely unpleasant. So everyone seemingly has a good reason for doing what they're doing, but at the same time, a lot of them are kind of dicks. And it's written in a way where that's not necessarily a cop-out it's not the sort of it's not a sort of false equivalency it's written as um their personality is such that they can hold these contradictory uh notions in place um even while they're doing something awful or being corrupted in intriguing ways i really i really liked it um the other thing he's written that was the worst selling book at dc for the time that it was running so Um, the other thing he's written is one of the sort of things that's been lauded quite a lot of Marvel recently, which is the Vision. Um, is this Vision of the Cardigan years? Yes, this is Vision of the Avengers, wearing suits, cardigans, generally having a a natty time in the suburbs. Well, he's having a terrible, terrible fucking time in the suburbs, but he doesn't in really a know that. Good jumper. In a in a series of delightful suits and jumpers. Come so. In this, Vision basically has, has decided that he is going to 
purge his uh, purge his emotions to a degree and and settle down and have a family. So you have to do that in order to do that. He moves he moves to the suburbs and creates a wife and two children. Hasn't he had a family before? He's had a family before, but they were uh, visions created by the Scarlet Witch. Um, Yeah. Okay. Continuity. Continuity. Oh God, it hurts just saying it. Um, so he, he basically creates a family in the suburbs which are like him, they're synthesoids like him, they look like him, there's a, a son and a daughter and a wife and they are smart and inquisitive and want to learn about humanity and it all starts to go wrong from there. The whole thing's sort of written with this doom-laden, portentous uh, narrator. Um, who you you don't know about until t- towards the end, but the sort of elements of of farce. Um, so yeah, so it's like a reverse Stepford Wives situation where these robots have willingly placed themselves in amongst humanity and are trying to be incredibly visible, and it doesn't go well. You get bits of sort of neighbour paranoia of they're not like us. I don't trust them. Let's get um, on my local social network and talk about how they're standing outside threateningly. Yeah, this sort of thing. And it, it, so it, it plays on that and it plays on a whole bunch of things around him trying to balance being uh, a superhero and, and having this normal life, a normal life which he has wholly invented um, and is trying to maintain even though he doesn't sort of know everything that's, that's going on. Um, and it, it similar, similarly to Omega Man, takes a very, very, a completely... A completely invented, completely no no sort of parallel to reality um, storyline, and does interesting, useful things with it. Um, so I think there's sort of seven or eight issues so far, and it's been quite bleak and and quite uncomfortable. Not that necessarily the main characters know that yet. But um, are they good cardigans? They are good cardigans. Does. At any point, a time-travelling, partially cybernetic mutant turn up and give him advice on knitwear. You, you've taken a joke that I made. I know. I'm a terrible person. Well, I mean, no one's coming off well here, because I said it, you said it, she's laughing. No, Lucy's doing okay. She's staring Stony at her with a look of sheer disgust. My specialism. Um, it's, it looks natty. I would say the artworks. The artworks great. Um, well rendered cardigans. Well rendered cardigans. You can you can almost see the short high high thread count fibers, high fiber count, etc. So the the artist is Gabriel Hernandez Walter, and it's coloured by Jordi Blair. Mm-hmm. Of course. And it's a really nice look because he's got quite a he's got quite a lot of texturing going on in sort of pencil, and then she's sort of overlaid quite muted colours apart mm. from the sort of pink and green of the Vision family's hair and skin um, so that really stands out but it's just it's full of lovely little moments and lots and lots of weirdness um, there was a sort of standout moment for me where he's trying to live this normal life and his children have misbehaved at school and he's summoned to the headmaster's office and um, the headmaster's telling him off for something that he just ends up standing up and saying, I've been, I'm Vision of the Avengers, I've saved this planet 27 times. You would not be here telling me telling me about my children if it wasn't for me. 
Um, so it's in, in a lot of ways it's about his absolute failure to live this life that he thinks he wants mm. um, and sounds, I've been really enjoying it, it sounds, so I am not massively familiar with the character but it sounds like a thing that I would enjoy reading nonetheless is it sort of relatively non-context dependent or largely yeah um, there's a few little bits of um, Marvel history which I think are largely explained away because there's some mm. sort of fairly minor characters um and, you know, occasionally it will jump to he's off with the Avengers and taking mm-hmm. a call from his wife and saying, darling, I'd love to talk, but I'm fighting Monstro. Um, so, to I think if fair, you can... I don't, I don't know what's going on most of the time anyway, so it probably won't be that jarring. Yeah, it'll probably be fine. I, yeah. It's I, it's a really good comic. It deserves a lot of been thrown at it. engage with how fundamentally weird and creepy it is for him to just create more or less magically a wife and child wait until you get to the dog <laughs> yes yeah I mean the whole because it could follow a, it could take that as red and not deconstruct it but play with the suburbia stuff it could play mm. with this on multiple levels or it could attack it on all of the levels on which it's weird it's really all of the levels um, they are you know they're, they're brand new and they are struggling and he's not helping because he's he you know has placed them into the roles of this mm. urban life, so it does it does explore a lot of things in multiple ways, mm. um, and it's just sort of it's overwhelmingly difficult at times, um, but genuinely well worth reading. Um, the other thing I I read from Marvel's Daredevil, um, the new sort of post reboot run. Who's on it? Um, Charles Sewell, who has been doing a lot of stuff for Marvel. Um, not much of which I'd liked before. Um, so I think he's been doing a lot of um, jobbing stuff, like he did Death of Wolverine, which was not my favourite thing. But then he did do the recent run on She-Hulk, which was excellent. Mm. Oh, that was supposed to be good. Um, and very much like Dan Slott before him, he is an ex-lawyer and wrote it as a legal drama. Mm. Um, Single female lawyer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so it's him, on, him writing and Ron Garney doing the artwork, and... Um, he sort of gets, gets um, the thing that Bender said about Daredevil about 15 years ago which is that if you're going to write it you've always got to write it as pulp um, and it's basically him and a new sidekick who is a uh, who is essentially him but for Chinatown rather than Hell's Kitchen mm-hmm. um, teaming up to fight a sort of like almost a Fu Manchu style character who set up a weird church a weird sort of quasi-mystical church when he's been siphoning off power from the uh, the hand, the sort of supernatural ninjas of the, the Marvel Universe. Um, and he's called Ten Fingers, and he has ten fingers and a bunch of Lugas that have been adapted for him so he can fire all ten triggers at once. And When you say he has ten fingers, does he not have any thumbs? I didn't count. He's okay. got a lot more. He's, he's got a lot more digits than you would expect. This okay. has got something to do with a cult where numbers of fingers is important, isn't it? I have a feeling I've read something to do with this. Um, th- he, yeah, they. He sometimes cuts them off people and grants them to other people, using this sort of stolen power of man. It's just really sort of campy pulp fun, and the artwork's great. With finger arbitrage. Yeah, yeah, just sort of. It's sort of a bit like the Yakuza, except there's a redistribution program. It's a sort of socialist Yakuza. Um, 
No, it largely is that. It's it's sort of set up as a as a sort of church slash gang preying on uh, young undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. in New York's Chinatown. Um, and it does work with that, and it does work with it reasonably sensitively, I thought. Um, but it's not really the focus. The focus is on doing daredevil stuff. And as such, the artwork looks a lot like Frank Miller and a lot like John Romita Jr. just sort of got thrown together, and it really works. There's some great stuff with colour and highlighting, and it's it's really nice. I don't like doing that reductive thing of saying, oh, it's like A meets B, but... There are elements of both in there, both of which have worked for Daredevil in the past, and it's really, really nice. I wasn't expecting it at all, but it's very, very good. How about butts? You want to talk about some butts? Well, I do like them, and untruth is a sticking point. Would you say there are any ifs? Relatively few. Let's talk butts. (laughs) Can I tell you a story about a butt? Yes. Okay, so I know somebody who had a single night encounter with another gentleman and when asked what the goods were like, claimed the butt had corners. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? Just so much muscle, it was essentially a big Mm. cube. Oh God. I think, but probably in a good way. Because you know you get like the little bum dips and yeah, that, yeah, like more. the dimple and then, oh. and then muscles under it. Oh, the dips are good. Uh, yeah. You can get like so most of like fist a fist in there. Low polygon sort of. Yeah, yeah, definitely like sort of nineties PlayStation One. But. Yeah. Like cool. if if you'd been able to kind of fumble the protagonist in Goldeneye. Yeah. Why butts anyway? Why aren't we going with uh, say arses? Well, for a long for a long time we've been threatening to do a butts cast. And the only way we thought we could do that reasonably was by talking first, you know, about some butts, but then about cheesecake and representation. Do you mean specifically why butts and not asses, asses, bottoms, bums? Posteriors. Creeping Americanization of our uh, native podcast. It's easier to say. It just comes out a lot faster. (laughs) It was also the name of the comic that uh, Lucy was reading when we just started saying butts a lot. No, that was a hoi booty. Shit. Mm. Although Butt is the name of a um, what was a big underground queer zine is now a reasonably mainstream like indie mag, just Butt. And a high booty is an American zine about butts again, which called mm. all of them butts, so butts. We can't defend ourselves here. Not against the butts. No. But isn't isn't that the interesting kind of like to, to sort of jump to the conclusion? Go straight to the end. Yeah. It's fine, we've been here a while. But but <laughs> No one's applauding. Why is no one applauding? Um, God, it was shit. Yes, yes, it was. How about objectification then? Mm. Here we are, talking about butts. Yeah. Enjoying talking about butts. Mm. But there are people behind those butts. <laughs> Sometimes Usually. in front of. <laughs> Usually in front of. <laughs> behind in some of the comics I've been reading. Oh, God, so I reread Side by Side by Miyoki, and it is just, it, it's billed as this sort of sweet, teen romance thing about two childhood sweethearts or two best friends that discover they like each other in a hot and steamy boy-on-boy way and then move to the big city to be gay and fabulous or some such bollocks and it basically narrative it's just porn it it sounded like it would be sweet if slightly cloying and it's just porn well 
does what it says on the tin. Yeah. So that happened, right? Mm. Porn in context is fine. Yes. yes. Porn. <laughs> the yeah. surprise porn is usually was, not ideal. I was surprised by the description, but actually it does, when you read it, it is just set up as a porn comic. It's, it's even got a sort of tongue-in-cheek joke about fucking the pizza delivery guy in that they haven't seen each other for ages and then one of them orders pizza and it's delivered by the other guy and then they're like, hey, let's fuck. Um, but in a weird... That is a very loose <coughs> setup for a sex scene with the pizza guy. Yeah. But in a... And then it does jokes about it afterwards and indeed throughout. But yeah, it's, it's contextualised pornography and they are basically getting it on every third page in a fairly explicit way. In a way that the setup kind of implies and it sort of works and it's voyeuristic, but yeah, it's contextually... But what if you were in it for the story and then you just found it was mostly porn? Um, you, you would probably find that out on about page five, at which point you've probably not damaged the spine enough that you can't return it. Mm, fair. Unless you tear it in sheer surprise. <laughs> <laughs> <Ugh>. Cox! <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you operate. Yeah. Probably not like that. It would no. be exhausting. Not like I just, yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> Ruined books all over the place. So the reason that Hester's here talking to us today is her X-Men expertise because I think X-Men is a sort of fairly good um, microcosm of good superhero comics and also weird skin-tight back-breaking TNA comics. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, and Gambit's bum. So there is a lot of Gambit's bum. Well, okay. We go back in time to a, to a younger, more naive um, <laughs> teenage Hester. I came to comics when I was about thirteen or fourteen, and I read X Men, and this was off the nineties animated series, X Men. And when you got over the horror of No Morph, <laughs> <laughs> and I think. One of the things I I think attracted me to X-Men, although I probably didn't think of it like that at the time, is that there were actually quite a lot of women in it, which, uh, you know, I, I a lot of children's TV and, and, and stuff, that there's, you know, there's an action team, and then there is a single woman whose role is to be the woman. And although I still tended to like those characters because it was it was the only woman um, I guess coming to X-Men although I didn't really acknowledge it is almost half the team is women and when I actually came to read the comments sometimes the majority of the team are women um, and I think that that was something that um, appealed to me and I think uh, this is I think partly where things like Guardians of the Galaxy and um, uh, the Avengers, uh, the movies have come over problems is because when you've only got one woman on the team, that that woman represents all women, whether you really intend it to or not. Um, and so therefore anything you do to that, that woman becomes controversial. It's like, well, you're saying this is a universal uh, experience for women. No, it's just that character. But since you've only got one of them... Um, she's sexy and she's a secretary. Yeah. So or a sexy prostitute assassin, as is usually the case. Uh, that that is a type. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Sorry, just little thing there. So, I came to X Men reading 
reading these comics as a young teenager, and obviously, yes, as well as these having many women characters and, and them being characters and having storylines, there's also obviously a lot of tits and ass. And you just kind of accept that as a, I am reading comics, this is what comics are like. I guarantee there are more volleyball scenes in X-Men than in any other superhero series. Or baseball or basketball. Yeah, basketball. They've got a um, lot of sporting equipment. Bouncing around. Well, like right. it's said in a school, maybe they're just following a rounded curriculum. Yeah, I really want to see the, the sort of spin-off comic about, you know, their janitor. Yeah. Random pool parties in December because Stormers has changed the weather. Oh, God. I mean, you would, but still. I'll just get out of this sexy Santa outfit and into my bikini. <laughs> Barely even necessary for some of the characters. And that's part of the point, <laughs> is that they're all pretty much wearing skin-tight clothing all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but the women are, are wearing less clothing and, and more not clothing. Some Yeah, and it can be pretty grim. Like, sometimes you get something like, like on the Grand Morrison run where they just made all of the costumes a black thing that stopped at the neck. And everyone wore that, and it kind of made a lot, well, a little more sense. Um, but then you have sort of a variety of costumes, and it is sort of it, X Men is sort of the typical superhero single color onesie with a few like a belt and and some boots that are a different color, and that's your lot. But there are some characters like Emma Frost is a very obvious example. Yes. Emma Frost. I think was introduced basically wearing a basque and knee highs and a little furry jacket. Yes. Um, and increasingly wore fewer jackets. Um, and then you have characters like Magic, who again is wearing something that looks like an arrangement of tape more than a, than a costume. Russell wore one of those ones. He did. He did, yes. I don't think it was ever explained away as the only way he could access his powers. I don't know. <laughs> it was how I hid some drugs in a club in Amsterdam. But they get they they get explained away like oh they know the effect they're having oh they know what they're doing and the effect they're having on people who see them. But the writers have gone out of their way to say that, which feels like a really weird and uncomfortable way of trying to justify cheesecake in a comic that's pointed largely at children and teenagers and. Uh, and and that's the thing. I mean, yeah, some of the things I've been looking at recently, kind of going to get on to more that they're starting to be a bit more even-handed about the uh, cheesecake or beefcake. Um, but really, these are comics that were intended for children and, and teenagers, and should that not exactly should that be there because I, you know, teenagers aren't sexualized. I mean, but what what role is it? playing there people aren't reading them for this are they they're reading it for a story yeah i mean there's 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 i don't think any question of sort of avoiding notions of sex and sexuality but at the same time just having female character appear in a bikini in a full page spread because that's the thing that you do is not a particularly clever or effective way of using that in a story and, and the fact that it's all of the female characters yeah. so i even think like more of a McTaggart, who wasn't a superhero, she was a biologist, and most of her time is spent in the lab. And yet, I'm sure I can still remember some back breaking poses and mm-hmm. tits and ass on the same side of the body kind of. Um, it's... And actually, the worst thing about the first class film was basically her having to wear no clothes to infiltrate a club um, right at the beginning. Oh God, I've forgotten about that. Mm. 
The other thing, the kind of classics in the genre, men need feminism too. So the idea that you have to put this stuff into your comic in order to appeal to teenage boys, the idea that the reductivist version of what boys like is these really kind of pathological caricatures of back-breaky sex lady. It just... It's patronising and it's reductive and it pushes people into a box that they'd probably be emotionally healthier if they weren't in. It's also that... Also, I mean, that's not the biggest problem. This is not wow laughing of the men's, but I I would like to hold up my tiny placard of maybe don't push the men's into that box. So there's, there's two issues there about how things like this address audience mm. one is the this is our audience it's tiny but it's safe let's point it at 35 year old straight guys um and keep selling that 25,000 copies uh, a month because that will just keep us scraping by that's one thing that they do um but also the flip side of that is that today's audiences are quite loud and quite vocal and do say back to creators consider the audience so, for example, the, there was the thing a while ago with um, the Spider-Woman comics where, which is, you know... You mean that dickhead that time? Not even, it's not even that nice, and this isn't the Frank Cho thing even, although that did spiral out. Um, so they hired a bunch of artists to do alternate covers for Spider-Woman. Mm. One of them was Maria Mignara, who is an Italian porn artist who drew something that, by his standards, featured a lot of clothes, but also featured two butt cheeks the size of a person's head, held implausibly far apart, purely by costume and presumably catching the character mid-cough. Um, <laughs> and the audience to that, which was, you know, it was a comic where the audience was largely female, they basically said, for fuck's sake, don't. Why do this? And that kicked off a whole large discussion. Well, it's censorship if you don't want this. No, it's not. It's just not appropriate for the audience of teenage girls. It's fine for the Italian porn guy to do his Italian porn thing. Somewhere else, but maybe in this Italy. Is, yeah, this is maybe not You're the place You're taking away for our it. boobies. Yeah. That is, that is the battle cry of the internet man babies, isn't it? And, and I don't know, maybe in the 80s and 90s, it was a bit harder to come by porn. But nowadays, yeah. if you want porn... You go to, and look at some porn. You have to work to avoid it. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason... A basic Google search for these characters' names is going to get you some crudely drawn MS Paint pornography of any of them. And there's a reason, like, Porn or Kittens is a fun internet game. Porn or Kittens, for those playing along at home, t- put in a random search term, go onto Google Images and see whether you get Porn or Kittens first. Turn Safe Search off, obviously. Otherwise, it's just too easy. It's just kittens. The kittens yeah. win. Apart from the sexy kittens, yeah. which never win. Yeah. Sexy kittens can't catch a brain. <laughs> <laughs> My studio sessions take. Sexy kitten sounds like an actual marketing phrase from the 60s. Yeah. So one of the reactions to this has been things like the Hawkeye Initiative, which mm. is basically taking the poses that the female superheroes are put in, putting male superheroes in them and saying, look, isn't this a bit fucked up? Which I think it's generally quite funny and I like it, but there are problems with, with it. I think that's partly it, it starts to come down on the side of, look, isn't it ridiculous when men look sexy rather than isn't it ridiculous when people aren't anatomically correct? 
or you know I mean, the, the comparison they're kind of going for there is all of these men and women are heroes and some of them we're allowed to look heroic and some of them are looking sexy all the time um, instead of looking like heroes. Um, yeah, and you get... The sort of the... Yeah, the, the, there's that sort of backlash. Um, there's a few people, like some of the work on Batgirl, which has been... which is sort of desexualized or at least reined it all in a bit it's sort of yeah nice to see um and then i've noticed this more on tv than in comics actually but i think i've noticed recently about a lot of genre adaptations of stuff particularly some of the lower fi stuff is, is that it's had a very uh, i don't know if it, what feels to me like quite a gay male gaze maybe it's a, a sort of maybe it's a female gaze i don't know as i'm watching this as a gay man and enjoying the shirtless it voice, feels like your gaze yeah do, do, do you mean arrow particularly i mean i mean arrow so in the mainstream there's arrow and bits of daredevil mm-hmm. um um i imagine i haven't watched luke cage yet but i imagine there's a fair bit of it there there's a fair um, bit of it there but i think with um with daredevil and luke cage they're sort of explicitly for adults and in the again le- it comes back to context in the less mainstream in the kind of pulpier or cheaper in the, let's be honest in the adaptations of crapper things um, Shadowhunters, Shannara, um, some other bits and pieces. It's it's basically just hot boys guaranteed to be at least mostly, mostly topless at least most of the time, and that in a way that it's not doing mostly with the female characters. I don't know if that's partly the sort of fantasy, um, anecdotally fantasy readership skews female. I wonder if that's maybe a catering to your audience thing. But I I think it's also partly that nudity is not inherently sexual. Um, so nobody told Hollywood. <laughs> well, so nineties uh, X Men and stuff. Um, Wolverine had his kit off mm. most of the time, but Wolverine was not a sexualized character. Yeah. Um, he was working out. He he was going feral, or he was being experimented on, and there were all sorts of electrical equipment happily sitting in front of his. And cock. Some people were getting off on that, but but it wasn't. That wasn't the point. Mm. Of the story. Mm. It wasn't. Um, so just being naked isn't itself so that, no, this no. is this is the the counter to the blah, blah. if if you complain to a certain sort of person about sexualization of women in comics they will put um point at this and say look these are idealized male figures they are naked and they're running around doing sports and things but it's not you the know. same thing happening but no. it's not sort of female gaze it's those are male power fantasies rather than female sexual fantasies whereas the female characters are drawn as bog standard heterosexual male sexual fantasies also the sort of the version of the future where actually we solve this problem by just objectifying both genders equally isn't probably the way to go about it yeah this is kind of where i was going with that is i've seen a a bit of a rise in the beefcake Mm. And whilst it's nice that if we're going to have this, we have it more equally, I can't help but feel that all that... I feel I get away with going, hey, this is kind of cool because it's full of hot boys, because I'm operating against the ambient direction of power. Mm. So I kind of feel like I get a free pass because I'm not joining in with an institutional downpunch. But I also feel like it's kind of not okay for me to be saying that stuff. It's not... It wasn't bad that we were overtly sexualising one group of people because we weren't overtly sexualising everybody else. It's 
not great when you apply those same lenses because hey objectification you're making an object of a person that is a bad thing so I kind of feel like the thing the remedy that we've arrived at in some quarters is let's ledge at the boys too which whilst it's fun and I'm sort of enjoying getting away with it I feel like I shouldn't get away with because it's not a good solution and sex is not the only interesting aspect of human experience and if we continue sort of pushing culture in that direction you know the whole sex sells thing Mm. sure it does but other stuff is also interesting and does it have to be sex all the time I mean I'm not a sort of I'm not a massively kind of culturally sex focused person mm. I just find it I won't watch most TV because it's just sort of boring it's mm. just sexy shots all the time and I don't really mm. care about that and while we're on this one where's the body diversity mm. god I love Ojo Sex Toy for that yeah but only like a couple of distinct types of human are actually mm. physically attractive Roger that's what we're being told oh, it's, 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 that's that's it. I'm sorry. The scientist got back to me this morning. All right. Hmm. Everyone fast. else is a potato. <laughs> I am a hairy cylinder. I think the there is more um, sexualization of main male characters, and in fact, there was in the '90s when I finally get around to talking about Campbell. Um, but it's now become a, a bit more... There are certain characters that are sexualised mm. that are presented more sexually, mm. um, which I think is possibly the solution there. If it is appropriate for the character, um, that's maybe mm. maybe not a, a whole excuse, but at least when it um, is disparate based on different characters rather than what used to be the yeah. case, which was all the women. So yeah. we did, we did um, sort of get around some of this by making... Jokes about ha ha, Hester really likes Gambit. Gambit has largely been characterised as a superpowered Pepe Le Pew. Um, I don't think that's unfair. <laughs> he speaks broken, probably fake French all the time. And he chases after people, and sometimes, sometimes it's quasi-tragic, but a lot of the time he's just a sex pest. Well, that was one of the things I was going to comment on is also the presentation. Although he has consistently been a sexualized character, the presentation has changed. So whereas in the 90s, he was, yes, basically a, a, a sex, sex pest. And people seemed to like it, consent or not. Um, and he was shown being athletic and playing basketball with his shirt off and women draped over him and that was what made him a sexy man um lately it's more things like he watches buffy and he likes cats tumblr is seeping into sexualization <laughs> in gambit versus deadpool deadpool's cracking loads of jokes about gambit's like perfect abs and yeah it's just sort of and um it's definitely tumblr but but it, it is um quite uh an aspect of the character they play up. So the recent uh, volume five of uh, his uh, standalone lone character comic, um, the first page is basically him getting out of the shower and there being a whole load of strategically placed objects. <laughs> and he is getting ready to go to a party and he spends most of the rest of the comic in uh, a tux. And that's totally playing to the audience. Um, is he still wearing metal boots? No, that they, they've phased it out aspects of the costume it doesn't wear a head sock anymore either (laughs) no longer has knee-high metal boots for his job as a thief which they've always explicitly called a sneak thief as though there's some sort of loud clumsy sort of thief that's somehow very effective that would wear lumbering boots yeah 
He's always worn giant metal boots. It makes no fucking sense. He's, he's so agile, he can yeah. make it work. They could be plastic. Are you saying Gambit's cosplaying as Gambit? <laughs> At this point, with the tumbler seepage? Yeah. Yeah, probably. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, and the other thing he's been in an ongoing series fairly recently was um, All New X Factor, and... He's captured by the villain at the end of a comic and he's fully clothed. And at the beginning of the next comic, he's naked for some unspecified <laughs> reason. <laughs> and then in that comic, that they uh, you know, take him as a prisoner to, to his uh, back to his team. He's naked, shackled, on his knees. And this is just... There is no particular reason for this. And then halfway through the battle, somebody chucks him his coat, but it's... He's no longer wearing the trench coat. He's now got a short version of the coat. It basically covers nothing. It's just got some cards in the pocket. <laughs> uh, plus that particular comic, um, basically everyone is wearing... Strangely, although comic superheroes are always wearing skin-tight costumes, for some reason this particular artist managed to make them look more skin-tight than usual. Shading, They're kind maybe? Of, like, like contour shading? You know... Bulges and and it's just something about this is this is what got me about McKelvey's novel, which is that there is practically no point at which his ass isn't contoured or his abs or when he's like jumping out of the window firing the guns, you can basically see his nutsack. Um, whereas generally he's doing it on purpose, though, or yeah. he's being blisteringly naive, yeah. and and someone else is explicitly objectifying him. But you contrast that to, say, Wiccan, who is drawn with, with the muscles and the figure, but presented as, like, basically, Norvar's the, the sex one, and although all, they're all attractive because they're all drawn by Jane McKelvey, so they've all got the McKelvey hair and the perfect bone structure and all of that jazz. But, um, yeah, you've got the sex one and the cute one, basically, and the and Wiccan always comes across as a little bit kind of fluffy, and although he's sort of tremendously muscular, just isn't shown in that sexual way. Interesting sort of balance. That's, I mean, that's just, that's reasonable characterisation. Yeah, yeah, Norfolk is the sex one, but... Yeah, to the point that at one point in the comic, his girlfriend basically tells him to shut up and stay pretty. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> But I mean, that's really it, isn't that? That's the whole thing, is that context and character are important yeah. for any of this. There's never really going to be good context for a hypersexualized version of Spider-Woman. Yeah. I, I took sex drugs by mistake. <laughs> that's an episode of Torchwood. Yeah, it that's is. every episode of Torchwood. There's some of them, they all die. Where's the good ones? <laughs> Fuck, no one likes Torchwood. <laughs> I've never seen it and now I don't know what to think. You've never seen Torchwood? I have not. I don't own a TV. Have you heard of Pterodactyl versus Cyberwoman? No. It's exactly what it sounds oh, like. God. They fight a pterodactyl with barbecue sauce. How does that go? Badly. Oh, for everyone? Yeah. Okay. There's a later episode where a man tries to fight a sex gas. Like a sexy... A gas. gas. A gas alien that's, that's sexy. He tries to fight a... He tries to punch a sex gas. I mean, I've done a sex gas, but... 
Not racist. It's not the same. <laughs> it's just not the same. And also, it probably wasn't in Cardiff. I only went to Cardiff once and it was with my dad. We had hot dogs. <laughs> Sexy hot dogs? No, no. What do we think we've learned today? <laughs> Don't go to Cardiff. That's not new information. Actually, I thought it's quite nice now. Marvel swimsuit special. Yes. Yeah, we haven't talked about the Marvel swimsuit special. I love the was, Marvel swimsuit special. <laughs> which is just a massive joke about sexualized characters in Marvel. When did they start doing them? They only did them like once, maybe no, twice four. in there the 90s. There are four volumes four. of the Marvel Swimsuit Special from, I think, 91 to 94 or something. Wow. Um, but there were complaints because obviously putting cheesecake in your comics is fine. But as soon as you start to provide a supplement that's just about it, that's wrong and corrupting the children. As soon as you start to explicitly acknowledge and be aware of what you're doing... Oh, God, no. It's oh, fine with no. subtext, though. Because then you have to confront it. When I came across the Marvel Swimsuit Special, Marvel Swimsuit Special, as a teenager, I just kind of, I just rolled my eyes. It was a bit stupid. I wasn't that interested in it because there was no story. Um, now, I I love the Marvel Swimsuit Special. Tell it brings what? me genuine joy. Sexy Punisher. <laughs> Punisher in Skull Speedos. Or Ghost Rider, who is um, lounging on a beast. and goes With a giant flaming head. And he's completely naked, but he's basically a uh, skeleton who's set on fire. Um, <laughs> Finally, someone is appealing to me. <laughs> and I often worry about people with really niche tastes. Like, what if it is that obscure and then you just can't get up to anything else? Oh, well, what if you got it from that in the first place? You know, you're at that exact moment of sexual development mm. when something is going to spark a weird it's fetish. It's just imprinting. Like, you're like a, a duckling, but for Ghost Rider. Ducklings for Ghost Rider sounds like a charity event. <laughs> Not a good one. No. Just really inept. Just catapulting them through the flames. <laughs> They're very cute, though. When they burn and Briefly. die. <laughs> Sorry, you were making a point. <laughs> but while, well, I mean, it was kind of, it was a mixture of things. Some of it was just the cheesecake. Um, and some of it was just stupid jokes. And some of it was both. Um, so, some of it's still quite grim, but you do get the impression that it's basically a bunch of Marvel editors, A, giving money to their friends for single page drawings and B, seeing how uncomfortable they can make their audience. And, and that was... They did start sexualising male characters who weren't normally sexualised. So as I say, there were some characters who were always quite sexualised, and they tend to be the sort of live athletic ones, like Gambit, so Nightcrawler, Nightwing, although that's DC, um, characters like that who were a bit more boyish, maybe a mm. tiny bit feminine. Um, whereas this would have things like... Um, Captain America lounging on the on the beach uh, with a yeah. uh, come hither look over his shoulder and, and that particular image is actually not very nice looking but it is clearly sexualised yeah and it's uh, unusual for the character exactly um, so they did do a, a, a bit of, of genuinely sexualising their um, their non-traditionally sexualised male characters including to reiterate the Punisher <laughs> who I, I think, despite basically having been on his own and essentially 
homeless for about 40 years, has had sex once in the comics. Which is probably why he kills so many people. <laughs> and then there were some really stupid and actually not very nice jokes, like the one about um, Domino delivering in 30 minutes. And, oh. oh, God. Um, yeah, Domino's another character where they've always made the excuse of, well, she knows what effect she's having, and, and there's, there's some particularly shitty stuff with Rob Liefeld around that. Really? Like, Rob um, Liefeld, yeah. you say? Yeah, I know. You're as shocked as everyone else. Also just, you know, swimsuit issue, but Rob Liefeld massively disenfranchising the foot fetish audience. <laughs> what a dick. <laughs> but, but in retrospect... Beastie nubs. <laughs> As a piece of, of very, very 90s stuff, they're enormous fun. I, I mean, if, if they tried to do exactly the same thing today or along the same terms, I don't think that they'd get away with it and I don't think that they should. But looking back on it, they're, they're just... It's joyfully stupid. Um, what they should do is they should do it again. They should sell it completely sealed and then it should just be Namor. Oh. Every page is Namor. No, yeah, because the thing with Namor is that he basically wanders around in swimming trunks he all just the time wears anyway. A lot of the time. So in order when he was yeah. actually included in the swimsuit special, he's wearing like a clamshell over his junk and nothing else because it was the only way they could get him to wear less clothing. <laughs> Did they actually do full Venus? Like the actual Yeah. <laughs> Namor is constantly trying to fuck someone. Like, it, it makes sense for him. They've always been fairly explicit about that. Uh, there was, a few years ago, a couple of artists who were working up to pitch a, a new swimsuit special and went as far as doing a couple of drawings and it never kind of went anywhere. Did the drawings get as far as Tumblr? Yes. Of course. The only place they ever appeared. <laughs> um, and but the kind of unfortunate thing about it is that they were actually... Sexy. They kind of... <laughs> it was... Uh, Surely there must be a mistake. It's th- this is actually, you know, looking at nice-looking people rather than to just completely stupid jokes and double entendre and, and uh, things of the, the, uh, the 90s original. Maybe they were people who were, like, faintly aroused by the original and sort of got the wrong end yeah. of the stick and just tried to play it straight, as it were, on both counts. Again, they were looking at one of those um, periodically appears sort of hot renditions of Disney Princess things that mm-hmm. some sort of someone had done on, like, a fan art thing. And they were kind of like, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's quite cute. But, yeah, it was, where, where's the joke? Where's the humour? Where's the sort of character? Someone has just drawn hot boys. And I'm down with that, but... And some of them do wear skimpy outfits in yeah. Aladdin... Yeah. Isn't wearing many clothes most he, of the he time. He's not a clothesful gentleman. And has no nipples. He doesn't have any nipples. No, that's also an impediment to his career. He did in the stage show. They had not taped well, up the nipples obviously. in the stage show. I mean, people have nipples. No, but I wondered if, as a kind of joking nod to the, to the movie, they'd have like taped over them or done something. I wondered if they'd have done something. You can make up that shit off, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And that's maybe one of the reasons why, when it comes to the live action stuff, all right, they might also be more aware that... Uh, women are watching these movies and like looking at cute men but also once you come into to casting actual actors even even attractive ones vary in their attractiveness mm. and their features and mm. some people might have thick lips or long eyelashes and things and, and you just sort of work with that but whereas if you're dependent on an artist to draw what they think uh, you know a, uh, a buff man should look like it's not 
going to look quite the same. You've got the problem of... So, I mean, I tend to live my life basically with the assumption that what I look like isn't of any consequence to pretty much anyone. But if it's basically a visual medium, you don't really have that kind of luxury. You have to depict someone somehow. And the way that we tend to depict people in films and comics Mm. and stuff is broadly attractive, Mm. sort of by default, and then explicitly very attractive if you want to point out. Yeah. Yeah, the baseline is a very sort of white slender human usually. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Yes, it is. But they're often blue in Marvel. But they're not doing so much with the big, muscular... I mean, where is the sexy Wolverine? Well, Wolverine's dead right now. Well, yeah. Probably might be Don't, sexy. Be <laughs> Don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. I mean... So... It depends. I mean, he's traditionally... One of the things that the comic artists have been able to get away from is that the comic version is meant to be five foot two, um, which, you know, they just abandoned completely for the films and, and made him, like, six four and bigger than everyone else. Well, that, I, I thought they mostly tried to still make it look like he was shorter. They wouldn't stand him next to people if they could hole. help him. Um. They, they gave up on it a bit later, oh. but they did that Lord of the Rings thing with a tiny set or something. I don't know. <laughs> but again, that's, so that's another thing where sort of the depictions of people are again pretty normative mm-hmm. like especially i think especially in the films you don't have a short guy doing that because a short guy is not particularly attractive because society says a short guy is not particularly attractive mm-hmm. you need a tall guy for that slight aside when the x-men was originally being shopped to film studios stan lee took out ads um petitioning for danny devito to play wolverine that would have been really good. Stanley gets it. <laughs> That's amazing. And Danny DeVito, you know, he's a hairy guy. I think he could. He's a hairy man. Yeah. And he can act. Yeah. Which can. is vital for <laughs> a, a notional 80s version of the X Men that Stanley is shopping around by taking out adverts. Come on, I love Stanley. Although, that book that you lent me, yes. the gay one, uh, Carl's Bed and Breakfast. Um, all crotch all the time yes and but th- that tends to be a slightly different aesthetic from the one you see in comics which as mm. I say is often about the sort of lean and yeah this agile. is more muscle boy so that's I mean we've largely talked about superhero comics because superhero comics is where the stuff is the weirdest when it is something like that and when it is you know it's, it's comics um, that are about or feature a lot of sex or comics that are going to niche audiences so like Tom of Finland is a very good example. A lot of Nazis. That's quite a niche audience. Um, and it's a very particular aesthetic of men's bodies. Like, Carl's Bread and Breakfast is a... Sorry. No, 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 no. I was just moving my lips. No. I wasn't going to say anything. Carl's Bread and Breakfast is a weird one because it's... It's going to a subculture which takes a certain amount of its... Well, certainly from the period it was written for a certain amount of its self-definition as, as around sexuality um, and broadly speaking there's only for so far you can run away from the fact that some of this identity gets about what you do with your fun parts but it, it, it's pitching it in a really weird way because it's part newspaper, newspaper soap, soap strip part sex farce and the, the thing I found interesting about Carlton Rex it's, it's got a nice sort of lightness of touch it's a bit shit but is that even when it's not telling a sex storyline 
it can't quite resist, although it gets less worse for this as the comic goes on, but especially in the early ones, can't quite resist just really overemphasizing the pecs and the packages. Yeah, as a we're trying to have a conversation, you're just kind of grabbing me, yeah. sort of. But yeah. at least one of the characters just, just tend to wander around um, the B&B with, well, in his pants and yeah. other various people. They never seem to lock their doors when they're having a shower, no. ever. No. Um, there is less certain, sexy that way. A certain amount of, of, of sex fast there. I must admit, I didn't enjoy it very much. No, and it it's, did it's seem, weirdly shallow. Yeah, I mean, it is just kind of gay soap opera thing, which in itself it needn't be bad, but it was... It's kind of boring. Yeah. So I think what we're, we're coming around to here is that context matter, character matters, writing matters... It would for be all of this, and it would be super nice if sort of average people, mm. sort of if the average person were more likely to see someone a bit more like themselves depicted instead of the default human being, kind of like white and pretty. Yeah, representation's pretty fucked. Mm. Cool. Don't buy superhero comics. You'll never get away from them. It's really hard. It's not that hard. You never bother them in the first place. No, I never got to have it started. <laughs> You know when you're playing Hearthstone? Yes. We're just feverishly reading X-Men. Oh, God. One yeah. day you're you're in your 30s and you're still reading superhero comics. Uh, even when you think you're done. Recently <laughs> I thought I was done and I suddenly something... I can't even remember what the trigger was and suddenly I was back reading X-Men. They're on the internet. Know. Yeah. They're right there where anyone can see them. They want you to consume them. It's actually a craft project. I was doing a craft project where I wanted... Was it your shoes? It was my shoes. I I wanted to make some X-Men shoes. My shoes made me read X-Men. That's a well story. You could get 250 quid from Women's Weekly for that. So... If there was a nerd Daily Mail. I went to to the Oxfam because I'd noticed... The mirror, isn't it? They had a whole lot of cheap comics. I just wanted, you know, something I could buy and I wouldn't care about cutting up. But I made the mistake of reading them before I cut them up, you know, just for old times' sake. And then suddenly I'm buying comics again. Yeah. Could you cut them up, though? Once yes, I've read them. Okay, that's good. I, I have comic shoes now. Good. That's pretty cool. That sounds great. One thing I will sort of call out in terms of the sort of body shape stuff is that Grant Morrison's X-Men run did a lot better at that sort of thing, introducing different body shapes and, and different sort of... that mean, they're mutant characters, but, you know, you had really spindly people. You mm-hmm. had very, very large people. And... Um, like it was weird mutations. Yeah, and it was just it was a lot broader, very deliberately, because it was much more about culture than mm. going off and fighting the the big evil. So sometimes it happens, but it's rare and it probably does. It's creator driven. If you are someone who's mm-hmm. making this stuff and you give a shit about it, you will do that. And if you're someone who's drawing pretty people because that's all you've ever drawn, yeah. then you probably won't. And someone I, like like Grant Morrison in two thousand four, two thousand five had the cachet to drive that sort of thing. Yeah. Um the, you know, no one's going in on their first job at Marvel or DC and saying, can we do something about, you know, Catwoman's cleavage? Can, can we, we make them more lumpy? Um, I also think there is a thing there about those superhero comics is that they will have many, many different artists drawing them. Mm. And often the only distinguishing thing about a character is the colour of their hair and their costume mm. rather mm. than nothing about their face shape or their um, height or their body shape. Mm-hmm. And, and the more... 
requirements you, you have on that. It might be harder. Mm. Might be, I mean, I'm sure it's a problem that they could solve if they're interested in. Yeah. But you are talking about a lot more different artists for yeah. sure. people. That's yeah. particularly problematic in DC where they have double shipping and it just means they're alternating artists issue after issue. Um, it, the work suffers in a whole bunch of other ways, I think, because of that. And we, we've sort of touched on that a few times on here, but it's... Do you know what's great for what? body diversity as well? Wet moon, wet fucking yes. moon. Yes. It's got people like weird fucking people, like limb stuff going on, just a whole range really of wet, shades. Wet Everyone looks mm. not, not normal, but they don't look sort of aberrant in their perfection. No, and it's not the focus either. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's... They're there. They're the people in it, but it's not... They're just being people. This is the body they happen to have. It's physiologically diverse. It's not often remarked, except in as much as it's part of that character. So some people have dysmorphia issues, but some people really don't. Yeah. Yeah. What was that? I think it was a Kickstarter porn comics anthology that we maybe talked about one time that had really good body diversity. That was um, Spike Trotman's one, wasn't it? Uh, Smut Peddler. Yes. So that had quite a lot of stuff in it. I mean, yeah. it was so fairly mainstream, but it did have some. I think it had sort of there were some trans characters and some people with yeah, fairly just physiologically diverse. Like Those, humans are. Like humans are. Yeah. yeah. Like humans really fucking profoundly are. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really good. Actually, I enjoyed it. The indie scene much better at this than mainstream comics. Yeah. And I think Beautiful yeah, you're seeing a lot of kind of you're getting less of that sort of creators within the big two driving that and a lot more people just saying, fuck it, I don't see myself represented, I don't see my friends represented, I'm going to go and do it myself. You also have people trying to push it within those companies. Mm. Um, Maybe not, well, definitely not as loudly or as visibly as Mm. elsewhere, but there are some people there doing it. It's Mm. It's not like the creators don't want to do their stuff. No. It's just... It's harder there. It's harder there because commercial pressures are what they are. Mm. Which is not an excuse. But it's... But it is the reason why most things do yeah, or don't reason, happen. Reason rather than the excuse. Hmm. Are we done? Yeah, I mean... Yes. It's, it's a bit sad, this, isn't it? It's just all a bit of a mess, but there are some good bits. Do you have any closing comments about Gambit's ass? No, I think I've covered arse. Anyone want to talk about Gambit's arse? I don't even know what it looks like. It's very much like a human arse. Shapely. Covered just... in purple spandex. Hmm. Quite. I have seen one Very of those large before. metal boots just below it. <laughs> Alright then, kids, we're done. Say goodnight. Let's get a pizza. Good night. Good night. made of potato though. Yeah. You, like a tubular chip with a beard. More of a croquette. Yeah, more like a... Yeah. I'm covered in breadcrumbs as well. Yeah, they keep rubbing off. I need to get the hoover out. <laughs>